Welcome to the podcast series of the UNESCO Chair in Refugee Integration through Languages and the Arts. We bring you sounds to engage with you and invite you to think with us. Welcome everyone. My name is Knar Aksu and um, I'm a second year PhD student based at the School of Education. I'm looking at the areas around art and law and migration, especially art practices for social change and access to justice. I'm joined by my colleagues, Katrin Evans, Effie Samara, to have a chat with our guest, Zoe Hogan from Sydney Theatre. She's not here physically, but she's joined on Zoom, like we all are. So maybe let's start with a round of introduction. Katrin, maybe if you want to say a few words about yourself. Sure. Uh, so yeah, my name's Katrin Evans and I am a doctor, Dr. Katrin Evans. And uh, I very rarely say that at the moment. I graduated from my PhD just about a year and a half ago. I handed it in just before lockdown and I too was sort of exploring, I guess, arts practice within the context of participatory work with refugees and asylum seekers within Glasgow. And I've since gone on to become the head of creative learning at the Citizens Theatre here in Glasgow. I'm going to hand it on to Effie. Good morning everyone, I'm Effie Samara, I'm also in doctoral study uh, at the University of Glasgow, the School of Education, looking at the political dramaturges of exile and the implications, narrative, legal implications, embodied textual implications. I've also written and produced a lot of theatre and some film lately and written a couple of books as well, um, looking at human rights, women's rights, and again, within the exilic context. I'm very delighted to be joining all of you this morning. What about you, Zoe? <laughs> Thanks, Effie. Uh... My name is Zoe Hogan. I live and work on colonised and unceded lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, which you might know of as Sydney, Australia. I am Director of Education and Community Partnerships at Sydney Theatre Company, and I'm also trying to be a PhD student at the University of Sydney, um, also focusing on working with drama and theatre with refugee and migrant communities, which is how our paths crossed. And I'm very glad they did. It looks like there's a lot of um, common studying and common research fields that we've all got together. And I was wondering, actually, if what is new? I guess what is new for me is I have been working on a a program at Sydney Theatre Company for five or six years now using drama with adults um, who are, you know, usually from refugee and migrant communities and are at different stages of learning English as an additional language. And what's really new for me is trying to do research on that program and also be the artist facilitator in that space. So, yeah, all of the challenges that come up with putting like an additional hat on as the researcher is new. I very much recognise that tension. I mean, it's I feel it less so now, obviously, because I'm not in the act of research. But I definitely, because mine was my PhD was practice based, 
and I was so used to having before that just been the artist or the or the coordinator sometimes both in those roles I sort of workload wise kind of struggled sometimes with that position of being both in the room making work and wanting to like really engage and find beauty just for the sake of it um but also sort of always sort of thinking about well what does this mean in the context of research and actually that feeling difficult sometimes because I felt like you were observing people's behavior which was always something that I wasn't really interested in doing I wanted to find out what the work did if that makes sense uh, I don't know if other people find that in their research at all or that tension yeah I would definitely see it especially with if you're working already or if you're an artist as well it becomes really difficult like what you said Katrin in terms of trying to like observe or pull yourself away from it and I think that's that's a new concept for me like that's something new that I'm trying to still adjust to it so it's good that I'm hearing from experienced uh, elders <laughs> that's okay I'll take that <laughs> it's a good title elder feels weighty you know I feel yeah. important <laughs> say it again <laughs> yeah I don't know if, if, if that's something you also experience Effie or um yeah no I've um I've thought a lot about this I had a big shock, actually. Um, I'll bring in an example here. When I was writing Lesbos, which was the initial stages of, of my doctoral research, and um, I thought it was going to be easy when uh, Rima Sharifi from Mary Hill introduced me to a Syrian lady. And it was the opposite. It was very, very difficult because this good woman was very angry and nothing could have prepared me for... The conversation that ensued and I had things written down and it took a completely different route we we ended up talking about completely different things this was an educated woman who had absolutely no desire to be in Scotland so mm. what I had imagined and prepared myself for which was a stereotypical approach was completely thrown off kilt and balance and I had to improvise my reactions and, and most of it was actually silence because I wanted, I wanted to know about this woman who was simply just another woman, more educated than myself and more eloquent than myself, speaking in Arabic and speaking in French. And she just, you know, it, it was an outpouring of, um, as I said, anger and fury and, and all of that. You know, when we're talking about the ethics of both research and the subject of the research and the object of the research, uh, I think we need to keep on thinking about that for a very, very long time, because I don't think we're anywhere near resolving that. Who's the subject here and who's the object? And what gives us the right to go in and observe and take, make conclusions on what we observe? And then the second question, obviously, of inviting someone to talk about themselves but always under the bias of how we see them. So I invited this woman as a refugee. I was wrong. She was a doctor. She was a medical doctor. She was not a refugee. She had no desire to be seen as one. It's a very shady area. Mm. I think ethics-wise, for me at least, it marked me. For the remainder of this research, the more I think about it, the more difficult it becomes for me. So I don't know how you, you, you all feel about this. 
Yeah, I think, I mean, it's interesting because I know that as a sort of a bunch of prompts that we had to think about, like there was the word reciprocity. And I don't think that uh, reciprocity frees you of any of those ethical dilemmas. But I guess it's about what are the spaces that we create for each other and how can they feel and 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 again not to be naive enough to be like oh I've created a reciprocal hospitable space and therefore there's no power dynamic you know of course things are awkward because society is awkward (laughs) the way it's been designed is punitive so actually it's very hard to meet in a completely balanced space but I think one of the things that I thought about a lot and worked on a lot as part of the PhD, my PhD, but also part of the projects that I guess I developed within that PhD, but also as a growing practice for myself over the last few years is just about what kind of spaces we are able to create in a world that is essentially quite hostile and riddled with power dynamics. And actually, if if what I can do in the short time that maybe um, in a workshop space or you know in a conversation is I don't know create a scaffold where it feels just somehow freer slightly less pressurized more hospitable or less hierarchical and again you can't free yourself of all of those things but so much of my arts practice <laughs> becomes before you even do any art or do any theatre performance or you know it feels like what are the spaces and I think I thought quite a lot about you know sort of just countercultural spaces and that doesn't mean they have to be hyper radical though you know I'm totally up for the hyper radical but I also it's about gentleness and I think Effie one of the things sorry I'm totally rattling on but I just think I wanted to come back to the this idea of gratitude and our expectation and again I think I'm sure all of you are coming across these archetypes in different ways, but this idea of the sort of grateful refugee or the idea of the, um, um, the image of the palatable refugee who is grateful enough, smart enough, got all the right balance. And I just think also one of my jobs as a practitioner is to fight against that is to be like, it's all right. You don't have to love this project. (laughs) You don't have to want to love Scotland. You don't have to want to love being here, you know, because, why should anyone be forced to feel a thing about their position? So I think in some ways, part of the imaginative space that you try and create for people or spaces that you enable are about being like imaginatively as free as possible rather than transactional, I guess. is. But that's a work in progress. I can't say that I actually achieve that, but I guess it's what you can try and do, isn't it? Just something you said, Katrin, it reminded me of different labels that people also carry as well and that was one of the plays that we had done a few years ago about how long each person carries that label of being Mm. an asylum seeker a refugee or a migrant and and the consequences of that as well so when you introduce yourself then you become more of a when you introduce yourself as your label is that the piece you made with the sits pinar Yes, yeah, yeah, because it's so funny. You did a brilliant like quiz show moment, didn't you? With like you in your gold jacket. (laughs) Yeah, that was then world spirit. Yeah, when we went to Bristol, actually. Yeah, yeah, that's where (laughs) I saw you do it. Yeah, (laughs) that was a funny one, and and I think we were asking questions at the very end about when do you stop being a refugee? Mm. When do you stop being an asylum seeker? When do you stop being a, a migrant? 
But yeah, it was it was really interesting about walking through your own life and it's that narrative as well about migration when you talk about it and that's something I'm really interested in, in mm. terms of how do you change the narrative and how do people change the narrative? Because sometimes in some group meetings or even in different spaces, people are asked to introduce themselves according to their refugee status. Mm. And I, I used to find that really problematic. And I think after a while, people get used to that. They feel that, okay, this is how I should introduce myself. Yeah, there's a compulsion, isn't there, to, to be like, yeah. oh, I must give you a bit of my story. And you're just like... Yeah. Oh. <laughs> you don't but, have to give yeah, anyone. You don't have to. And you don't have to label yourself as, oh, I'm high empanar, I'm an asylum seeker, and I've come from this country. And I think that was quite few settings that I've been to that was quite dangerous and I felt it was quite patronizing as well because obviously you're you're just immediately labeling people as just from their kind of immigration status rather than Mm. themselves as a human being which was was really concerning and I think changing that narrative is now really important even the language that we hear in the news and the language that we hear from the politicians about illegal and the term legal you know that has a huge impact for people, but also for society as well. Just going off on a slight tangent, it also makes me think about how um, as artists and facilitators trying to create a space where we are not prescribing what people entering it to experience and to take away, just because I, I guess I've had a lot of experiences where in the external facing world, the work that I do is often described as, you know, using drama for language learning, which is perfectly fine. And that's appealing to some people that we work with, but I've also worked with people who are not interested in learning English. They come along and might have a completely different experience where what they talk about afterwards is, being in the imaginative creative space and telling stories and everything and it's so so I think that kind of the colonizing influence extends beyond you know that labeling of you know who's a refugee who's an asylum seeker to actually saying oh well this is what you're going to get out of this Mm. program or this experience and I think in an ideal world we could have those spaces and people can choose to enter them and choose to value what they experience there in their own way. What you're saying there is it's kind of about, I think the way arts projects, not all the time, of course, but like the compulsion again with the way that the arts world operates, because we operate in the same world as everyone else, which is <laughs> that, you know, like you kind of sometimes have to describe a project before it's started, you know, in order to get funding or in order to invite people into a space, you have to sort of make some decisions about that work. And it's like, what is that balance between committing to an idea that is an invitation for people to take part in? but not pushing it so far that you're then being prescriptive, I guess. And I, I mean, I think that's the case, not just for work, arts work or research work within the context of asylum and refuge and exile. You know, I think that happens in a lot of groups in inverted commas, you know, like when someone is considered a demographic, as it were, then or a label, 
that can happen really easily and I guess part of our work is about understanding that we do sit within some of that but trying to push against it where where you can or yeah or just shift it I don't know yeah I liked what you said before about the little shifts and and small ways that you can push against Mm. the hierarchy and everything because I think um there's a writer called Michael Balfour who's written about this idea of theatre of small changes and, mm-hmm. you know, we don't always have to claim that we're changing the world because what I also think is really valuable are those, like, um, little shifts that can happen in a creative space that are hard to capture and quantify and talk about even but mm-hmm. are really valuable. Effie, I was going to ask you, because obviously you, the nature of your PhD is, in my understanding of it is, that it's, you know, it's evolved. You've sort of really grown with it in terms of being an artist and being, you know, a responder to the thinking around it. But you're less of a, obviously Zoe and I and Pinar, I guess we're all sort of community practitioners in some, you know, that might be where we came to our PhDs. And one of the things that I sort of notice in that world is kind of actually the, the need to hang on to that tiny change idea partly because I think to claim anything else is almost naive because the world is increasingly so hostile. So you kind of need to see your wins where you and hold on to them, even if they are just in a two-hour workshop or you, you, know, you see someone feel alive without being cheesy, have an experience that matters just for that moment because structural change through an arts practice or an arts project feels like a really hard task to put everyone under (laughs) over time, maybe. And as a cumulative effect, there's something, but I just wondered Effie, like, have you felt that change? Like as things have in my mind, I guess, become more explicitly hostile. It's not to say that it hasn't always been hostile because we know that it has, but you know, like as the language has become more hostile, do you find that's influenced you or, or, or your thinking and the direction that you've gone in? Big question. Um, Yeah, very good question. Of course, and I think just in terms of the British integument that envelops us all, um, we've had some pretty seismic changes over the last five, six years. And looking back, possibly going from post-war, I mean, I'm not going to stretch that conversation, but, you know, to yesterday when Elizabeth died, you're looking at a situation where this was an empire and now it is probably about to become no more than just a small part of a small island in the Atlantic. So arts practice sitting within that uh, has had to deal with phantasmagorical changes and shifts over a relatively historically short period of time. So obviously I've been in this for about six or seven years within the university and you already Obviously, you know, you're looking at the world, we've had a slight rhetorical, not a slight, uh, an obvious, sorry, an obvious rhetorical shift to politics, the politics of neo-fascism, whereas, for example, in the 70s, you, you, you had what you had, um, and it was cool, and it was good, and it was shameful, actually, to talk of people in terms of their ethnic background, in terms of their appearance, and now it has, again, become very, very fashionable after what's happened in America and here and in India and in Moscow and other places. So this is um, trying to create a political dramaturgy through that lens. I'm not sure that you could find a more challenging time 
certainly within the last 100 years. What's been happening over the last probably five or four or five years has been literally indescribable in terms of, of the speed and the rhythm of change. So you go from one thing to the next. And what I think is very, very interesting is that at the moment we're having to deal with a situation where you do see visually some sort of ethnic diversity and things like that, which will, you know, advocate it through the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. And you see that if you look at the British cabinet, for example, the new one that's just been instituted a couple of days ago, you see that in terms of visual effect. But in terms of class effect, you see a regressive politics. Now, all of this is, for me, there are so many ethical questions and also moral questions in terms of simply, you know, how you deal with it as a person. But also, obviously, in terms of, you know, the philosophical issue of what is permissible and what ought not to be permissible within academia. Now, you talked about power politics. You both did. You all did talk about power politics. And going back to that, and I know I'm, I'm diverging from your question, but I feel I have to because this is how I can, this is the only how I can answer it, Catherine. We are working within that institutional context. We are within the university and the university is under the umbrella of the British Integument. And that is the only how we can do this. There is no other way that you can be a doctor of philosophy. There is no other way that I can be. So this is the only option that we have left to us. And we have to deal with that. And you have to be an arts practitioner, again, under the umbrella of the Citizens Theatre, which is another very, very big institutional establishment. For me, it's gone from an academic project. It's gone to a very personal project because there was no other way that I could keep on writing these texts and I could keep on interrogating these people and I could keep on interrogating myself in that process and having lost my mother in that process as well. That was another very personal thing. And the question of loss became very, very close to me and very, very personal to me. So small shifts, absolutely, happening within the big questions and the big contexts of what is going on all around us. But also, I suppose, my question would be to all of you, to what extent are we able to consider a political dramaturgy from this and a politics of resistance? Is there any politics of resistance left here? Or are we just performing resistance? Again, that's another new problem that I've been considering, so perhaps you could help me. Maybe I'll give it a go, because it's, <laughs> it's a very easy question. Not. Yeah, please do, Pinar, please <laughs> yeah. just na- yeah. nail this for it's us. one for you. Maybe in my practice, because I use a lot of theatre of the oppressed, I see that quite close methodology where it could be used to create platforms for dialogue and also in creating some form of change. And I think that tool itself is really powerful and it doesn't really necessarily have to show a direct change, a direct visible change, but it creates different form of consciousness change maybe or change in people's thoughts about how we perceive migration and movement. And one example from that is when we usually did performances before the pandemic, we, I'm really interested to do performances at difficult spaces and performances at spaces that we think that are not the converted, if you know what I mean. <laughs> because sometimes when we perform, we perform to the converted in terms of who are kind of supporters of migration. But I'm always really interested to perform in spaces where we might experience difficult conversation 
or we might experience some form of resistance from the audience. And I always find that quite interesting and also challenging, but in a good way. And I remember when we did a performance and we performed in a kind of rural area and um, the audience wasn't the sort of audience that we were used to. And I quite like that because at the end, we, when we had some interaction with the audience for interventions, the audience members were actually asking genuine serious questions in terms of, well, why did you come here then? You know, questions like that. And we were able to answer that in a dialogue, in a theatrical method. And by the end, we were having a conversation about, deep conversation about movement, how the government treats people, the conversation about the immigration system. And obviously, it's not that we go into that space to say, well, we're going to make everybody love immigration and everything is going to be so good. But at least we had the opportunity to chat about it. And then for me, that also makes me realize and makes us realize about the perceptions that people see, the reasoning that people see when they make some form of maybe negative comments. And I always find that really interesting. It's, it's the comments that we always hear, like on Twitter or in, under the articles, oh, they come here, they take our jobs. I'm always interested to find out what, why is, what is the narrative behind that? Why are they thinking or why are they writing that? What makes them comment in such a way that that yeah that questions these things and I think for me using that methodology is really interesting and like earlier Katrin said as well you know change takes time and sometimes in different theatrical spaces or even generally it takes time to make change and have that space for conversation for dialogue and I believe that's that's so important and it was another recent example I was at the protest for the Rwanda flight this Monday on the I think it was the 6th of September, and we were in George Square, and I was helping uh, co-comparing the, the protest. It was the same day as the legal challenge against the Rwanda plan. And I had this elderly person coming next to me, and he just looked so friendly. I was like, oh, he's going to say something nice. Um, <laughs> he came next to me and stood right in front of me, and he was just like, why are these people coming here? They could just stay in France. If they were genuine refugees, they would just get their status in France. So I don't see a reason why they should be coming here. So I was quite put back and I was like, well, and I tried to explain. I was like, well, actually, you know, there's a lot of difficulties and it's not that every country gives asylum. And then he just cut me off and he just went and he went for a rant. And he was like, we have people flooding into our country. We have millions of people coming here. We just have more space. And he was so nice as well, <laughs> which kind of put me off. <laughs> I was like, why is he so nice? <laughs> and then he he just kept going and I tried to, have a conversation and I was like well you know this is what's happening at the moment and he just said well what you're doing is propaganda and he just kind of walked away and I found I was like well you know if we had a dialogue if we had a conversation we probably could have solved a few of the ideas that he was thinking but he decided to just walk off and and now I'm telling his story so <laughs> thanks for this experience that you've had on me <laughs> that now I'm sharing with everyone <laughs> I wonder, you know, what you've just said, Pina, was obviously taking that in is a big thing because there you are, young women sitting next to this gentleman who had lived longer than you and, you know, had these opinions and everything. You're describing a moment of reality, of real life. I wonder, I mean, to both Katrin and Zoe, is theatre now, has it become, is the protest that's happening within theatre, is it a bit too polished? Do we need to do the street thing? Do we need to do the street performance? 
are, are your places of work a bit too polite and delicate for what's happened? Oh, it's <laughs> a good question, Effie. Um, at the risk of being indelicate, I think I, you know, working for a theatre company that is in a beautiful area of Sydney, but that all in itself forms a barrier to people accessing it and seeing it as a welcoming place a lot of the time. And so I see my work and my role as really trying to like actively push against that and frankly a lot of the time that means that it's about going to where people are so I learned very early on in doing this kind of work that the best traction you make is when you go to where people are like have a cup of tea or coffee and actually deliver things in familiar and welcoming spaces that already exist. And I was thinking about your, your question earlier about resistance, and I'm so glad that you, you took that one for us, Pina, because I was not sure how I was going to respond. But I was thinking, like, in terms of people that I've worked alongside and worked with who have actually been really supportive of art in places like um, like working with people seeking asylum and working in hospitals or prisons are actually people who are doctors and psychologists and teachers and people who are distributing food. And it's actually those people who are delivering essential services. And I don't think anyone disagrees with that. Those people, and I don't want to, not making a generalisation, but in my experience, it's been those people who actually do see the value of having creativity and the arts in those spaces. And that's been an, an understanding that I haven't sought. It's just been there because we've been so welcomed into those spaces because in a centre where they might be handing out food, giving free emergency medical advice, um, giving job-seeking advice. They also see the value in having a room in that space where people are being creative. And it's interesting that in those spaces, at least in my experience, I haven't really had to justify why we're there and why we're doing something that is artistic. It's actually in other spaces like universities and big institutions where I've spent a lot more time trying to justify what we do. I, I don't know if anyone else has had similar experiences. Yeah, I would, I would follow Zoe's thoughts, I guess, a little bit in thinking about, and Effie, I love that question so much because it's so controversial and I it makes me uncomfortable and I thank you for that because it's always good to be a little bit uncomfortable because I think my experience of walking into working for an institution like the citizens is that the, well I guess part of what drew me to it is because actually the work the sort of work that Neil and Ellie my colleagues have done with Pinar and and feeling like there is a level of integrity in the work that's been delivered thus far that I can get on board with <laughs> and that I feel really glad that I've seen, glad that I've known about, glad that I've learned from. And so I guess I've, uh, there's a luckiness there that I've walked into that space, but also I guess that's part of what drove the choice. 
But that also, I, I guess one of the things that I'm pondering at the moment, having come from, I guess, my own theatre company, which I would was grassroots in its nature because it was small scale and it sort of moved in and out of spaces and it was always flexing and and I guess responding and making projects that felt instinctively right rather than strategically right whereas my role at the sits is to think strategically as well as creatively and I guess one of my reflections of late has been that institutions aren't grassroots so to pretend that the citizens is a grassroots organization would be to do a disservice to the things that it does do <laughs> but also it sort of then it that's when the performance starts do you know what I mean that's when the performance of work starts whereas actually I look at the potential of somewhere like the citizens that's getting rebuilt and it's going to be a beautiful potential building that we can hang out in <laughs> and and I guess part of my job is about going well who gets to feel like they can cross that threshold who gets to feel they can make work in that space or pitch work to that space and also who can just come and be creative in that space because actually that is a cultural footprint it's not a moving change well it, I guess it will move and change but it, it feels somehow different to the way I had to think about work and the way I thought about my own artistic interventions as, a, as it were but just to add, just to add to that, Catherine, isn't that another amazing thing? Because you're now working with different type of audience, <clears throat> maybe yeah. potentially the audience who would have maybe never seen plays mm. about different yeah. type of themes or themes yeah. around migration or themes around different social justice issues. So you're actually reaching out to new sort of audiences and bringing those themes into a space that maybe they could have, they would have never seen it or heard about. Yeah, it. hopefully. And I, but I also think again just to be careful with ourselves to not to not ask one thing to do all the things <laughs> because the kind of projects that we're talking about or the kind of art making that we're talking about has many audiences it has many makers it has many reasons and I think the work often that I've certainly the work that I was doing as part of my PhD and participatory work is actually sometimes I push really hard against the idea of making work for the audience. I'm actually more interested in process because I think in terms of human beings being in a room, the pressure to direct someone towards having to either share their story or like change somebody's mind is not something that I always feel comfortable doing. Whereas Pinar, I know that your process and your body in that space, because you put yourself through it, it's an entirely different ask. And I also think it's a, an entirely different ask from somebody who sits down to write a play or create a play or create a piece of work that is for an audience where your audience is the thing that you're thinking about a lot, as opposed to your own imaginative or creative process. And not everything that we make can be all of those things. So I think we also just have to be really careful with ourselves to remember that we on, we're on a spectrum, <laughs> as it were. And in that spectrum, we're all, con well, hopefully all contributing. Um, and I guess that's why conversations like this are really good and networking is really good and and, and, and looking each after each other via WhatsApp as Pinar has done for me over the times and back and forth. It's like being in conversation with each other when your contexts are different, but that you're, you fundamentally believe that you're in it together. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So it's, I don't know, I think it's, it's not about trying to rep institutions trying to replicate 
something that they're not, but it is about them growing and changing by the things that are coming from outside of that space. My last key word here would be, what does curatorial practice do in order to resolve the ethical dilemmas that we find ourselves in? Does it help or does it hinder? Are you guys gatekeepers? What, what are you doing here? What is this? That's my last thing here. I'm not going to contribute anymore because I can see big smiles and I'm not sure whether they're good smiles or bad smiles. <laughs> you are so good at asking questions. <laughs> These are the things that I've come up against. You know, you know what I'm saying? These are the yeah. big, big things. I remember the dissolving of Yugoslavia, right? And I remember being at the National Theatre at the time down in London. And there was this, this young woman who'd written a play and I was privy to some of the background stuff that was happening within the National at the time and how this play was staged. And it was so carefully polished. And yes, I mean, she was herself from the previous region of the, the Balkans of Yugoslavia. So she had borne witness to a lot of what had happened at the time. And, and she had created a, a, a transgenerational story of that time, which was quite beautiful. But um, what I suppose, trying to kind of take that and put it in today's context, she was chosen for different reasons, institutional reasons, political reasons, curatorial reasons. She fit the right image, put in the right box and put it in the program and put it in, you know, and put it out there and put it on the stage. And it, it was a success because obviously, you know, they've got huge experience in staging plays and doing what they're doing. And they, they do it very well most of the time. So this is what now I'm trying to have a fight with you over. This curatorial process, which instinctively I am against because I, I am the antihero. Why? Why are you gatekeeping? What's happening? Are you helping the process or are you hindering the process? I can't really answer that whole question, but I do feel strongly that there has to be different types of activism and there, there has to be space to rail from the outside and take things to the streets. Love that. And there has to be room for changing things from within or alongside as well. And I guess that's also what I think about and tell myself when I am in both in these institutions and also personally see yourself as an individual as well. And I don't, I, I guess the reason, and I don't know if this is relevant, the reason that I got into doing this type of work in Sydney was because I felt like a lot of Australians have felt very angry about our government response to refugees and asylum seekers over such a long period of time and I also knew that for me I'm not an activist in the way that I know Pina has done some amazing things like I, I really had to go what do I have to offer and how can I do a tiny thing in response to how I how this issue is playing out in the society in which I live and yeah so it's it's very imperfect but I just I I guess I don't want to be like either or about how people respond to these tensions it would be nice to 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 be hopeful I try to be hopeful because that's the only way to be 
Um, I wish us all well. It's a difficult route combining uh, academic study and research and real people's pain. And uh, perhaps we could move towards a new constitutional settlement for the theatre and for some of our own concerns within the spaces that, that we live in and a new way of, um, of forming these constitutional settlements rather than being told what they ought to be, perhaps have a little say in what they become. Yeah, I guess just filled with lots of thoughts and filled with unanswered questions. There's always more to say. There's always more to think about. And I guess for me, it's really been great to talk to you because actually for a lot of the time at the moment, I'm very much in the practice head and I'm in the projects and multiple projects and doing, doing, doing. And actually, that's part of the reason why I I sought out a PhD was to try and have time to do the thinking as well. So it is really good to just have challenging conversations with critical friends. You know, I think critical friends are, are the only way that we make any progress. So, yeah, I just think lots, lots to consider and lots, lots in terms of, for me, I feel like the main thinking point that I'm going to take away from this is just how, how we negotiate all the things that we want to achieve, <laughs> both structurally, socially, culturally, and see it as a journey. Because each thing that we do, if we put the pressure of all of it on ourselves, I certainly become paralyzed by not being able to achieve those things. And I think hope, Effie, is an absolutely, like you say, a part of that, but active hope and active sort of forceful hope, <laughs> you know, but also one that sets yourself parameters so that you can see the change and see the hope rather than only see the mountain. I totally agree with your reflections. And I think these conversations are really valuable because you can go really deeply into the messiness of this, the worlds that we're all working in and see some resonances across different contexts. But also I think it, it's really important for anyone who's working in these spaces to also, like you said, be able to reflect on those small shifts and to hold that hope that you were talking about, Effie, because even though it is, it, it is overwhelming and we're not doing a good job if we're not questioning ourselves and each other and having these kinds of conversations but also it's important that we keep doing this work is what I am coming away with. I think we need another chat and more discussion about how we can definitely use theatre as a way of communicating or theatre as a way of reflecting some of the themes that we are working on. I really like the questions Effie imposed on us at this early morning. So that's a good start to the day. <laughs> I think it's, it's especially because we're all working on the topic of migration and movement and borders. It's, it's very difficult times now. Now we've got a new prime minister and a new home secretary. A new king as well. A new king as well. So um, it's going to be it's going to be really difficult and interesting times to work to create plays or maybe to create discussions about movement and borders and languages and different concepts. And I think it's more it's, it's important more than ever that we continue doing these sort of work 
so that we have that conversation and dialogue with people. Thanks to Zoe for joining us today all the way from Sydney and um, for sharing your insights and your experience. And if anybody wants to find more information about Zoe's work, we'll put up the links um, under the show notes and you could find it also on the website at the Sound of Integration. Stay in solidarity, everyone, and stay creatively. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the podcast of the UNESCO Chair in Refugee Integration Through Languages and Arts, a podcast series to make you think. More information about work can be found on the website of the University of Glasgow, www.gla.ac.uk. Thank you very much.